We're in this series called Praise Is, and um, I want to just continue on that topic, on that line of thought, by talking to you from the topic, Postures of Praise. Postures of Praise. And I want to talk from this topic for two reasons. Uh, The first is that I want us to see in Scripture that our postures in praise and our expressions in praise are not shallow traditions of man. But they are very spiritually significant and they actually matter to God. What, how we express ourselves in our posture and the expressions that we uh, do in praise to God actually matter to Him. They're spiritually significant, they're scriptural, they're not shallow traditions of man and we'll, we'll see that in scripture. And, you know, I want you to understand that your posture and your expression matter because how many of you know that our posture matters because our body language matters? Our body language matters in natural relationships. I don't know about you, but if you have been married, you've probably had the luxury of asking your wife on some sort of occasion, how you doing? And she's saying, oh, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. I'm great. It's how many of you have ever had the experience of hearing someone or you said it yourself? It's not what you said. It's how you said it. That's body language. Our posture matters to the Lord because body language matters. There was a doctor that actually studied how body language impacts communication. And you've probably heard the statistic before. But he found that 93% of communication is nonverbal. 7% is actually what you say. The other 93% is your posture. It's your facial gestures. It's your tone. It's the way that you express yourselves. 93% of communication is nonverbal. We see this when we have kids. When we, have you ever made a kid apologize? <laughs> Sorry. Mm-mm, that ain't going to work. Because the body language is communicating something far greater than what's coming out of the mouth. You know, arms crossed, eyes rolling, sorry with an attitude. You know, we see this a lot of times. Body language matters. Posture matters because body language matters. You know, people say it's not what you said but how you said it because sincerity and authenticity is expressed more non-verbally than verbally. It really is. It, it, it really, body language is a greater indicator of the attitude of your heart than what's coming out of your mouth. And I think that that really speaks to Jesus' reaction in Matthew 15. Remember when the, the religious uh, elite was in front of him and he said, These people honor me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. Jesus evidently came to a conclusion that their hearts did not align with what was coming out of their mouth. And I'd like to contend and argue that it probably had a lot to do with their posture. The way that they were approaching God. Maybe it was routine or rote and it was just for the sake of religiosity, but there was no sincerity and authenticity because of the way that they were expressing it. And so body language, I believe, can be a greater reflection of the attitude of our heart than what is coming out of our mouths. You know what that tells me? That in some ways, our body language can outpraise our mouths. 
You know, I, I, I grew up um, uh, not necessarily at that, this church. There was a couple of different churches, and this is not a knock on United Methodist churches. Uh, I went to a United Methodist church for a series of time because in order to play on their basketball team, I had to go to church there. <laughs> and, um, and so I remember kind of the, the, the schedule of the, the morning. And there was a time of the morning where you sang the hymns. And it's in hindsight, I can tell you that it did not matter what was coming out of my mouth. I was there because I just had to place a check in the attendance box. And so even if I was singing these amazing, powerful hymns about who Jesus was, my heart was far from that. I was doing it out of obligation. Posture matters. Body language matters to God. And so the second reason that I want to talk about this is because all too often our postures and our expressions of praise can be dictated by the season of life we are in. Our posture and our... I'm not saying that as a rebuke. I'm saying that from my experience. See, we worship him when he is good, but we tend to dial it back when life is hard. See, I don't know about you. Am I the only one that has struggled with this because the Buckeyes lose on a Saturday and then somehow out of nowhere, I've got a lethargy in worship on Sunday morning. It can be that shallow. It can really be that shallow. We can be impacted by a Buckeyes loss on Saturday. How much more if we're going through a rough season do we tend to dial back our display of affection for the Lord because of the season that we're going through. Now, I'm not saying that for everybody, but I'm saying, in all honesty, I've been there. See, there's a truth to the fact that if I'm going through a rough season, I have a tendency to want to dial it back. And like I talked about last week, if we're all honest, when I've dialed back my participation in worship, it's because of the season I'm in. It's probably because, not because I'm tired, but because... I want to sit on my throne and sulk instead of building his. I want to take a seat in my, my chair, not because physically I may be tired and weary from the season, that may be true, but also because I want to sit on my throne and sulk because I haven't got my way or God hasn't displayed his power or his providence the way that I want him to display it. And so, when I think about all of these things, I'm reminded of King David. King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I, I, I want to I just stop here for a minute, because when we look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see that Nathan has come and he has rebuked David because he has committed adultery with Bathsheba and got her pregnant, and then he has to cover it all up, sent Bathsheba's husband Uriah to the front lines to have him murdered or killed on, in the on the battlefield. And so he's been rebuked. Now, what happens after that is Nathan prophesies that David, because of God's covenant with David, he's going to spare David's life, but he is going to take the child in David's place, which was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Take the child that Bathsheba will give birth to in David's place because of the things that he did. 
And I want you to see how David reacted to this situation. It says that that when Nathan kind of gave him the judgment that was going to come, it says that very day in 2 Samuel, it says in chapter 12, verses 19 and 20, it says that David grieved by his own sin. He, He ends up laying before the Lord in sackcloth and ashes, and he fasts and he prays for seven days straight that God would spare the child. And on the seventh day, in verse 19, it says, He, David, asked his servants, Is the boy dead? Yes, they answered, He's dead. Now, I want you to notice how David reacts to this. Seven days. Any of you guys laid seven days on the floor and fasted and prayed on continuously? Okay. Not too many of us. So he fasts and he prays that seven days. And on the seventh day, his servants tell him that that the, the baby has died. And then look at what David, how David reacts. Then David got up from the floor, washed his face, combed his hair, put on a fresh change of clothes, then went into the sanctuary and worshipped. You know what this shows us? Who or what we turn to in the most difficult times of our lives is the greatest indicator of who or what is sitting on the throne of our hearts. I say who or what because it can be a what. It's not necessarily a person. It can be a thing. But what this shows us is that who or what we turn to in the middle of the greatest difficulties of our lives is the indicator of who is sitting on the throne of our hearts. See, we can have a tendency to dial back our posture and our expressions of praise when things go hard. But in that season, who do you turn to or what do you turn to? You know, I love this, the Hillsong song, Desert Song. We sang it a couple weeks ago. It beautifully illustrates this. It says, in all of my life, in every season, you are still God and I have a reason to sing. I have a reason to worship. See, we have to make a choice in the most difficult moments of our lives who we turn to. And I love what David said. At the end of the days, he got himself ready and he went into the presence of the Lord and worshiped because in all of his life, in every season, he was still God and he still had a reason to worship him. So with all that being said, let's move to Exodus chapter 17. See how posture matters. Exodus chapter 17, uh, contextually, this is Moses has led Israel out of Exodus, and they are journeying into the promised land. They've been in this. Uh, obviously, we see that they, they are here for 40 years. It doesn't know, I don't know exactly how long they've been here, but they've come to a place where they want to rest, and uh, at this place they want to rest, they actually are confronted by the Amalekites. The Amalekites... Uh, were a fierce tribe. The Amalekites were actually distant, distant cousins of Israel through Esau's son, Amalek. And, uh, but they were not friends. Okay, uh, When they had a family uh, get-together, Amalek was not invited. Um, Amalek was, matter of fact, if you were an Israelite and someone called you a friend of Amalek, it was like a curse word. And so uh, they were known as a fierce nomadic tribe. They they actually killed for pleasure. 
and uh, they were in this region that, that Israel was going through, and so they saw Israel's presence as a prime opportunity to come against them and walk away with all of the things that Israel had brought out of Egypt. And so here we are in verse 9, chapter 17. So Moses ordered Joshua, select some men for us and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will take my stand on the hill holding God's staff. Verse 10, Joshua did what Moses ordered in order to fight Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Now, I want you to notice what happens after this because Moses says he's going to go up and stand on the hill. But once he gets up there, he decides to do something a little bit different. He decides to posture himself differently once he gets up on the hill. It goes on, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill, and listen to this, and it turned out that whenever Moses raised his hands, Israel was winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek was winning. See, it does not tell us that when Moses got on the mountain... He, he began to sing. It doesn't tell us that when Moses got up on the mountain, he began to praise. Moses goes up intending to stand simply to make himself visible. But somewhere along the line, he decides to lift his hands up. And he finds out that there is a greater impact when his hands are raised than when they're down. Now, it wasn't the power was not just in him raising his hands but it was who his hands were raising. And we find that out later in Scripture. See, evidently, there are moments in our lives where our posture before the Lord actually matters to him. Moses found this out. He goes up to stand, and he's visible to, the, to Joshua and the Israelites that are fighting, but evidently somewhere along the line, his presence just up on the mountain standing there was not affecting the battle. So he begins to raise his hands, and every time he raises his hands, the outcome begins to change. And as long as his hands were raised, raised Israel was victorious. It goes on to the, later on to tell us that as his hands got tired, he actually had Joshua, Aaron, and Hur continue to have his hands lifted because he learned that his posture mattered to God. And so we know that it wasn't just about him lifting his hands, but about who he was lifting over the battle. How do we know that? Because when we go down to 17, verses 15 and 16, listen to what he says, what it says. And so after they win the battle, Moses built an altar. You know what an altar is? It's a place of remembrance. What he wanted is, I want to erect an altar here so that every time people come up on this mountain, they will be reminded of what happened here. And he names the altar, the Lord is my banner. You know what that literally means? The Lord is the one I lifted up. It wasn't about Moses just raising his hands. Hey, I'm still here. That word raised in Hebrew literally means he was exalting. And so when he was standing there, he discovered that as I 
change my posture as I lift my hands up. The power is not in my lifting, but who I'm lifting up. And evidently, as I'm lifting my hands to God, that posture matters to God. And so as I'm lifting him as a banner over the battlefield, God is empowering Israel to change the outcome of what was going on. It was about who he was exalting. And he wanted generation after generation after generation that climbed that mountain to see this altar and say, I want you to remember that the power was not in what I was lifting up, but who I lifted up over the battle. Posture matters to God. It's not just a tradition that we do. It is something that matters that affects the heart of God as we do it. There was something in Moses' posture that moved the heart of God to supernaturally empower Israel to to win as long as he was exalting the Lord. See, how many of you are familiar with the five love languages? Slip your hand up if you're familiar with this. Uh, Five love languages is a, I think it was a revolutionary book. And it's a book that talks about how each one of us is loved in one of five ways. Now, if I love my wife the way I want to be loved, I'm going to miss the mark. And uh, love languages can change over time. But Jesus, thank God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But uh, we were having a conversation the other day, and my wife gently told me in such an encouraging way, you need to take that test again because I think your love language has changed. (laughs) I probably agree with her, but here's the reality. She was saying that. Because she loves me. And she does not want to love me and continue to demonstrate love for me in a way that I'm not receiving. So her love for me brought her to the place. I want to rediscover or discover again how you want to be loved. Because I want to love you the way you want to be loved. Do you think God is any different? That same, same process of discovery is what the bride of Christ needs to engage in to discover the love that the groom wants. See, it's no different. There is a, there is a language of adoration and affection that God prefers. This is why in Samuel, when, when, when Samuel rebukes Saul, he says, hey, you know what? God does not delight in your burnt sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. You want to love him through your sacrifices. He just wants you to obey his voice, Saul. Samuel was rebuking him because he was saying, the love you're giving is not the, the love that God wants to receive from you. You know, when Peter and Jesus were together and Jesus was restoring Peter, he said, Simon, do you love me? And he said, yes, you know that I love, love you. And he said, okay, if you love me, demonstrate it this way. Feed my sheep. See, Jesus has a way in which he wants to be loved. And right. a way in which he wants to be adored. And so my wife was going through this and, and, and she was doing it because she wanted to seek to discover how I wanted to be loved. Do you know that Jesus outlined one of the primary ways? in which God wants to be loved in John chapter 4? Turn with me there to John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. I can't tell if if worship was so good, the say law is still being shaken off. (laughs) 
or I'm just missing the mark. But here's the truth. It's really hard to get, get up after worship that good. And you know what? We have a pastoral staff that will not compete with that. We will not compete. It's not a competition between the presence of God and a sermon. There is no competition. That can go as long as we want it to go. We are not stuck to a time frame. God can rearrange that time frame. That is okay. I would rather the presence of God get the primary focus than what we're talking about. Because everything that you need is found in the presence of God. And this is just commentary. And so, John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and he comes across a woman at the well. If you know this story, he prophesies to her, and in the middle of the conversation, it steers into the topic of worship. In verse 19, we see, the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive, perceive that you are a prophet. She says this to him because he had prophesied that she had had five husbands, or four husbands, five husbands, and she's on another. And she... I love that the woman receives the prophecy and then she wants to change the topic of the conversation. She's like, I perceive that you're a prophet. Let's talk about worship right now. <laughs> don't, don't stay there. Don't keep, don't keep on talking about my, my situation. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. But you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And this is where Jesus kind of hones in on the language of love that the Father wants. But an hour is coming and now is. Say now is. From that point on. Now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks. You know, this is crazy. That word seek means crave. You don't think God craves? God has an appetite for your adoration and worship. He is hunger. He is not a megalomaniac or maniacal or sadistic but there's something that happens in the heart of God when people who are not forced to worship him or forced to praise him choose to come before him and say, I love you out of the freedom of my heart. He craves that. He craves it. He's hungry for it. And Jesus says, I want you to know what my father, the way in which my father wants to be loved is by worshipers who come to him in freedom to worship him in spirit and in truth. Two things we see here. The way we worship really changes when we really know him. He said, you worship what you do not know. The reason why you're worshiping up on a mountain is because you really don't know him. You think the mountain is, is the place you meet God. You're only doing that because you really don't know him. That's what Jesus said to her. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do. Come on. So the way that you worship Jesus changes when you really know him. Yeah. Can I tell you that, that the evidence of how much you know Jesus is displayed in your praise. You can't shake it. You can say all the Christianese all day long. Bless God, I know him. He's so good. He's so amazing. But if you're sitting like this in worship, 
How much do you really know him? Can I tell you the reason why I kiss my wife, hug her, is because you don't know her like I know her. It's no different with the Father. You will not tell me how to love my wife because I know her in a way you don't know her. And so my worship and affection and display to the Father is based upon how much I know him. You cannot dictate or control that, and I can't fake it. You can't fake it. You either know him or you don't know him. Because here's the thing. When you know him, nothing is on reserve. Nothing is held back when you know him. We used to, in youth ministry, I used to go up and hug and kiss my wife. And they used, to, they used to look at me like, get a room. Or they used to look at me like, oh, that's gross. And this is what I used to do. You see this right here? That's the seal of redemption. I'm married. I know her that way. So don't tell me how to love my wife. The Holy Spirit is the seal of redemption that you're the bride of Christ. So no one should be telling you how to worship him, how to love him. You either know him or you don't. The way that you worship is an indication of how much you know him. This is what Jesus was saying. I never forget walking into that room back there where the youth room is as a 13, 14-year-old uh, boy and seeing the twin brothers, Jason and Brian Dunbar, <laughs> worshiping the Lord. They're twins. Y'all know that, right? No, I'm kidding. But the way that they worshiped him from the start was an indication that I don't know him the way they know him. And can I tell you, it cultivated a hunger because I grew up in an environment where all I saw was adults worshiping the Lord. And I thought, oh, you can actually love God as a teenager, as a young adult? And I, I'll never forget how attracted I was to that because I was like, they know something about him that I don't know. The way you worship changes. Number two, God wants to be loved by worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. An hour is coming, now is coming, or now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father craves to be his worshipers. Worship, by de definition, is the expression of your adoration for God. And this is what the Father is seeking. See, how many of you see that praise and worship is not what we do for the sake of routine or ritual, but it's what God is seeking in his relationship with us? It's actually what... I'll just say it this way. Listen to me. If we want to love God the way he wants to be loved, then we need to offer him what he's seeking. You can love him all day the way you prefer, and you will miss the mark. We see this in relational conflict all the time. Well, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And the wife, more often than not, is saying, I didn't ask you for, for any of those things. See, I love gifts. So y'all want to hook me up? Cool. Just laying it out there, being vulnerable. <laughs> September 10th is Millie's birthday, and it's also mine. But here's the point. I can give gifts all day to Allison, but if I give her no quality time, she will not feel loved by me. So we take that same approach in our relationship with the Lord, and we vulnerably see Jesus saying, this is what the Father's seeking. And if we withhold this from him, 
How many of us are missing the mark in loving him the way he wants to be loved? And so let's talk about the ways that Jesus wants to be loved. So what we find out is that Scripture shows us in the Hebrew language that there are seven different words that show the type of praise that God is seeking. Seven different words. And it's interesting to note that only one of them is in relation to musical instrument. Only one is in relation to musical instruments. It's the word zamar. It's the first one that you'll see. Zamar means to touch the strings or parts of a musical instrument. And so as I'm studying, I'm realizing that if only one has to do with musical instruments and the other six have to do with postures and physical expressions of humanity, which one is the greater instrument? Your body or the instruments on the stage? Every one of us is an instrument long before we would ever learn to play one. And some of us think that because we can't pluck the strings of something, that disqualifies us from being on the worship team. Whether or not, can I tell you that churches existed for centuries with no music on a stage and worship was still being offered to the Lord? Because you are a greater instrument than an instrument on the stage. Six of the seven have to do with you, not what's on the stage. The second is this. So Samar is the first. The second is this. To hold out the hand, it's yada. To hold out the hand. To revere with extended hands. It actually means to confess So the lifting up of your hands is a declaration to Jesus that he's Lord over your life. Do you know this is a posture? This is a posture. How many people are going to concerts not realizing that they are exalting songs as lords over their life? Because God from the foundation of time said, I want you to display a declaration and confession of lordship simply through a posture where your hands are raised. See, this matters. This is not, has nothing to do with charismatic and Pentecostal circles. This is not, oh, are you Lutheran? Okay, you worship this way. It has nothing to do with, this, is, this has nothing to do with denominations. When you discover the spiritual significance of the praise and the ways we participate and how God is seeking that, craving that, wanting that, then it takes the way you worship to a greater level because I know there's so many people in this room that genuinely love Jesus. So I get excited because, oh, I can demonstrate to you how I love you by doing this. Do you see what I'm saying? By the way, the reason why this is so focused on God is because praise and worship is never about us. This is about God. This section of our our service has everything to do with what he wants and how he needs to be loved and how he wants to be loved. He wants to be exalted. He wants to be glorified. I don't care what I want. If I love him, oh, Jesus, I'm about to show you. I'm going to lift my hands, not because, 
Not because that's what we do. Not because I looked over and saw this person shout, this person kneeling, this person standing, this person... I'm doing it because I know what it does to the heart of the Father. In the worst times, in the best times, I will make my physical posture declare that you are still Lord in every season. I have a reason to sing. I have a reason to worship. So I'm declaring that by lifting my hands up. It's yada. Our extended hands are a confession. This word is often translated into English as the phrase give thanks. Don't get lost in the translation. Psalms 30, 12. It says this. It says, how could I be silent when it's time to praise you? Now my heart sings out loud, bursting with joy, a bliss inside that keeps me singing. I can never thank you enough. I can never thank you enough. I can never lift my hands up to you enough to express my gratitude. See, Moses was lifting. He saw that it was winning because he was actually exalting in gratitude. And he said, no matter what's going on in the battlefield, you know what, guys? Go ahead and lift my hands up because I just want to thank him anyway. I can never thank you enough. This is the lifting up of the hands is actually a reaction to the Lord. But there's also a lifting up of the hands that precedes anything God does. See, this is where the posture of your heart and the attitude of your heart is, is an indication of why you're lifting. See, there's one that is in reaction and then one before God would do anything. And that word is this, tauda. It's the lifting up of the hands as a sacrifice of praise, as an offering of praise. It's praising God before anything would happen. This was what Paul and Silas did, Joshua did, Jehoshaphat. This is what they did. They were saying, you know what? We're in prison. We're in shackles. But I'm going to lift my hands. I'm going to worship you before anything happens because you're still good. This is that same Psalm 104. Enter his gates with arms lifted up. Enter his gates. Get into his presence with your arms erected. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Continue to lift, uh, lift your hands to bless his name. Psalms 95 too, we talked about this last week. Let us come before his presence with arms lifted up. Let us shout. Yeah, look, if we literally did this, I would not be surprised if you walked through those doors. You can't even grab the bulletin. You're like, this is where I'm at, y'all. This is where I'm at. I don't care. Put it in my pocket. I am ready to praise him before anything happens. By the way, I would say that that is probably, in my opinion, a more sincere uh, indication of how much you love him because you're not praising him in reaction. You're praising him because you love him regardless. I'm coming in with my hands lifted. Number four, Barak. Not Barak, Barak. It means to praise God in kneeling. To still yourself from movement to thank him. Look at what David said in Psalms 145. My mouth will speak praise of the Lord and all my flesh will praise you in kneeling 
I will praise you, your holy name forever and ever. I love this because there was nothing. David was a man after God's own heart. He said, no part of my body is off limits from demonstrating my love for you. I'm going to kneel to demonstrate that all of my flesh will praise him. There will, there will not be a part of me that I will restrict. Praise is a full body sport. It is not a spectator sport. It is a sport where you participate and say, you know what? There are moments where organically, just because of the song or the place I'm in, I'm getting on my knees. Not because I need to be humbled, but because, God, I'm going to bless you from this posture. I will bless you from this posture. Barak, to praise him in kneeling. See, posture matters. Three of these seven have to do with physical expressions. Posture matters. Number five. Halal. This is where we see what Paul and Silas were singing, Psalms 113 through 118 and 136. To boast about the Lord. To praise him. To put our boasting of the Lord on display, even if it looks foolish. To rave about the Lord. To glorify him. This was what David was doing in 2 Samuel 6 when he was dancing undignified. I may look crazy, but I'm boasting through my legs. I'm boasting through my dancing. I'm boasting through my shouting. I don't care what it looks like because I rave about God. I rave about him. I am mad about him. I'm crazy about him. And I don't care what you think. You know why? Because look. Look. Because it is no different when the groom is in anticipating the bride walking through the door, as the bride, I'm anticipating the groom walking through the door, and there's an excitement on the inside that cannot be contained by how excited I am. I rave about my groom. I rave about my bride. This is what David was saying. Don't talk to me. Michael, you're just jealous about how much I love him. I will rave about him. It's the halal. Listen what Psalms 34, 2, written by David said. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Listen to 1 Chronicles 16, 4. This gets me so excited. Listen to what David said in 1 Chronicles 16, 4. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, and their only job was to celebrate and to thank and boast to the Lord God of Israel. Woo! He said, hey, here's your whole job. Stand before God's presence and tell him how amazing he is. Boast to him about himself. Woo! This is what David... I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to do another thing. I want you to stand before him and boast to him about himself. Do we got any boasters in the house? Look at... For, for further illustration, look at Psalms 113. It's an entire chapter yes. that just boasts to God about who he is. Yes. Yes. Yes, Lord. 
Number six, Shabak. To come to God with a loud tone. And, and that tone is clapping. You know when Isaiah said that if you do not worship, even the rocks will cry out and the trees will clap their hands. This is Shabak. To come with a loud tone and clapping and raising your voice and singing and shouting to praise God in triumph in public. Psalms 145.4, one of the most quoted scriptures in this house. One generation shall shabak your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I learned what shabak praise was when my dad was shabaking his tambourine. One generation shall praise your works to another. I was six years old looking at my dad just getting it, just shabaking in the house. But you know the whole point is? Never underestimate the influence of your shabak to the next generation because you are teaching them this is the praise that you're instructing them about, that you're teaching them about. To shout, to clap, all of that is significant impartation to the next generation. Shabak. I just love saying that word. And the last one, Tehillah. And if I can have the worship team come forward. Tehillah, to praise in song, to glorify and make him famous. This is what Jehoshaphat was doing with the worshipers before the battle in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. They were Tehillah praising him. And by the way, that is the type of praise. See, what? it's not just about demonstrating your affection for the Lord in your posture. It's also about demonstrating your affection for the Lord in your proclamation. Because Psalms 22, verse 3, as we sang, worship, building your throne, that's Tehillah praise. That actually is what you are saying is what God builds his throne on. To sing before him, to make him famous. Thank God that we are a part of a church that made him famous this morning. Yeah. Worship was off the chain. I know that ages me, but I don't care. It was so good. Tehillah praise. Psalms 35, 28. My tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. Will you stand with me? See, I wanted to share this because I really, it wasn't, I didn't share this by, because I was like, oh, people are not worshiping the Lord. That's not it. I just wanted you to understand that your postures and your expressions actually move the heart of God. Amen. That these are not routine things. These are not religious things. These are not things that are man-made traditions that we've done because we're Redeemer's Church. But these are things that we do because as we do them, we demonstrate our affection and adoration for the Lord. It is undeniable to him to see our body language not be a reflection of the posture of our heart. And so as we worship, as we lift our hands, as we dance, as we sing, as we shout, as we get on our knees, as we play instruments, all of it, all of it culminates in testifying and declaring to God, Jesus we are loving you the way you want to be loved. 
It is not about us. It is about you in this moment. We will build your throne because you're worthy. We'll build your throne because we want to make you famous. We will do it in public. We will rave about you. We'll shout about you. We'll dance before you. All because we are madly in love with you. And we know that this is what the Father craves. This is why we do what we do. So as we close this morning, let's demonstrate our affection and adoration for the Lord one more time. God, we come before you right now. And we posture ourselves with everything to demonstrate our affection and adoration for you. God, we love you. And Father, we want to love you the way you want to be loved. And so God, this morning, we demonstrate that before you. Come on, let's worship him.